So this semester we are reading uh, parables together and parables are stories that Jesus told and uh, they were one of the primary ways that he taught people. And as we've seen this semester, you've been with us, sometimes the stories feel clear. Sometimes they're really difficult and obtuse and um, that have this, this deeper meaning that we have to look at it from a different angle to see what he's saying. And so what we're doing together is we're trying to plumb the depths of what Jesus has to share with us, um, that we might see him and see his kingdom and see what it looks like to follow him. Um, So I don't know if you guys saw this today, but tonight is the largest lottery drawing in history. Jay's got a ticket. Um, 1.6 billion, billion dollars, 1.6 billion dollars. And if no one wins on Friday, it's $2 billion. Yeah, everyone like, it's at 11, so you have enough time to go get your ticket after this if you want it. All right, so um, on the radio today, uh, on the radio today on NPR, they were, they were talking about the lottery, and Mary Clark was telling me about this. They were asking, asking people to call in who had lottery experiences, and one woman called out and said she won $26,000 in the lottery, and after taxes, it was 19000 and they asked her what she did with the money, and she said she bought some stuff, and she's like, yeah, like that flat, team, flat screen TV that I lost in the divorce. That's sad. Um, really sad. Uh, and like, there's, there's often this, this tension between money and relationships. They, they, definitely have a relationship, they definitely have a relationship, but we see this, that often with money and relationships, there's this tension. Uh, one woman talked about winning $80 million dollars, and then after she received her winnings, she said she saw the darkness of humanity. Said it astonished her. It broke her family apart. Um, I was at an engagement party probably like six or seven years ago in the D.C. area um, for a family member. And was at this really wealthy man's house. And I was talking with this man in his home. And he was asking me what I was going to do. Like, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm in seminary. I'm training to be a minister. And his response was, wow, why? Why? Are you sure you want to do that? Like, you're not going to make very much money. Um, and I was like, yeah, I'm aware. Um, <laughs> and then not five minutes later, he says to me, you know, life isn't about making money. We're in this, his huge, beautiful house on the Potomac. Life is not about making money. It's about relationships. Don't work so hard that you don't get to know your family like me. And then he goes on to tell me about his college-age children that he doesn't really know, and he missed out their entire childhood, and... Um, he spent his enti- their child- entire childhood working for this money, and he regrets it because he doesn't actually have time with them. Um, so in this parable, what we're going to read tonight, we have Jesus making a deep connection between money and relationships. And I want us to explore that tonight. So um, if you want to read along with me, it's printed on the back of your bulletin. You can tell that the interns are out of town because the bulletin is upside down on the inside. So um, thank the interns when they come back. Uh, all right. So we're going to read um, from Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 14. And this is Jesus speaking. Um, This is God's word for us tonight. It is completely true and it is given to us in love. Jesus also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking my job away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. 
So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, 800 gallons of of olive oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 400. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a thousand bushels of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 800. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of worldly wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the worldly wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. This is the word of the Lord. Um, so just to say, start off tonight, a lot of what I'm going to be saying tonight comes from Tim Keller. Um, he's so helpful in making sense of this passage, because it's really strange, isn't it? Um, so Jesus is saying, in this prayer, he's saying, I want you to be like this person. I want you to be like this shrewd manager. And this text is difficult for us because we really don't understand first century ancient Near Eastern culture at all. Um, and we don't really understand their financial practices. And so um, first, we're just going to work through what's happening in the story and then, and then some stuff for us to consider. So the story is we got a rich man and he has a manager, which would be like a combo COO and CFO. And this manager runs the rich man's estate and invests his money. And so what the manager does is legally binding um, for the estate. And the rich man hears that the manager is wasting his money and he comes to the manager. This is verse two. And he tells him that he's going to fire him, tells him to put his things in order um, and he's done. His job's over. In, the, in verse 3, we see the manager knows how good his job is, that he's never going to get another job like this. He doesn't have any friends. No one likes him. He can't dig ditches because he's not strong enough, and he's too ashamed to beg. So he knows he needs to figure a way out. So what does he do? Well, he brings in the people who owe his, ma- his master money, and he cuts their debts significantly. And this creates friendships. These, these people then become his friends. Um, so the master comes in in verse 8. He sees what he's doing, and he commends them. And he basically says, though you're really dishonest, you're smart. And so verse 9, Jesus says to his disciples, I want you to be like this guy. I want you to use your worldly wealth to make friends. So there are lots of different theories as to what's going on in this parable. Um, the best theory I found uh, is this, is that the manager was, would have been putting enormous fees into his investment. So meaning that the, someone would come to the manager or come to the, to the rich man and, and ask for a loan, and um, the manager would do that for him. And in addition to the rich man's interest, the manager would charge his own interest. So that when the person came and paid him, not only would the rich man get rich, but the manager would get rich as well. And so both the master and the manager are making a lot of money on these debtors. And so by taking his fees out, so that's what he's doing when he's slashing the bill. He's just taking his fees out, just the manager's fees out. So not only does he make the debtors happy, um, but he can use these relationships in the future, right? When he gets fired, he can rely on these relationships, right? It's networking. It's networking. Um, but his master comes along and says, hey, you're giving me a better name in town. Because of this, because you're being smart with what you're doing, my name is, is getting better in town. So he commends the manager for his shrewdness. 
And so Jesus' point is that this is a man who's being wise with the use of his wealth. And he's doing it inside of a strictly secular framework, right? And inside of a completely secular framework, he's being wise with his wealth. Jesus, in verse 9, look at with me. He's saying, he's being wise, wiser in the use of his wealth than you, my disciples, my children of light who have the perspective of the kingdom of God. And so verses 8 and 9, this is sort of the key to the parable, what Jesus is saying. He's saying, here's a man being wise with his money, with his wealth in a secular framework. He's being wiser than his wealth than you are with yours. All right, so how are we going to think about this parable together? Well, y'all are in college. Um, you don't really have any money that's your own yet, right? You're either on loans or you're, money, you're spending money that you saved for the summer or you're, um, you're still on your parents' dime. So um, how do we think about this parable in a way that helps you, not just today, but as you consider a lifetime of following Jesus? And I know that a lot of what we're going to talk about will not have immediate application for you. But it could alter the way that you live for the next 60 years. And if Jesus is telling the truth, it could alter your lives for eternity. So for the sake of the future, um, would you consider listening for the next 20 minutes or so? So our parable tonight is about Jesus calling his disciples to be wise with their worldly wealth. So for those of you who are here tonight and you are Christians, this is how he's calling you to be wise with your worldly wealth. And for those of you who are checking out RUF and you're checking out Christianity, I want you to hear this, that this is how the Bible calls Christians to use their money. So how does Jesus call his disciples to be wise with their worldly wealth? Um, Outline for tonight, he calls us to see ourselves as stewards of money that is not ours and to see ourselves as needing a love that is not here. I'll say that again. He calls us to see ourselves as stewards of money that is not ours and to see ourselves as needing a love that is not here. Um, so in this parable, Jesus is likening us to the manager of someone else's money. So what he's doing with this money, this word manager, those of you guys who are taking classics, you might've heard this word oikonomos. It's this, like he's a manager or he's a, um, a steward or he's the ruler of the house. Um, he's basically a fund manager. So for those of you who are studying finance, you can teach the rest of us. When you are managing someone else's money, you can't do anything that you want with that money, right? Because it's not your money. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, whoever you are, if you understand that there is a God, you know that the money you have is not really yours. So stop acting like it's yours. Now, we've got this narrative of, as Americans of the self-made man, right? That, that success is you pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. So if you've got money or if your family has money, there's this narrative that says, I made that money. It is my hard work. Or my dad is really good at his job. Or my parents both worked really hard to get where they are. I've got money because I made that money. And as Americans, what we do is we source the, the, um, the location of our success in ourselves. It's my money because I earned it. And Jesus and the whole Bible are saying, no. Um, it's saying all of life, even our money, all of life is a gift from God. The breath in your lungs, your health, your skills, your education, all of it is a gift. Um, you know, I've heard people say, even your circumstances are a gift from God. You know, I've heard people say, um, my family worked really hard for what we have. Yes, that might be true. But if you've been born in the mountains of Peru in the 15th century, you could have worked really hard, but it wouldn't have gotten you very far. Your family says, we created our wealth. Well, no, the circumstances that God gave you, the talent he gave you, the life of he, that he gave you, all of it, it's not yours, it's his. All of life is a gift from God. David in the Old Testament, who was an incredibly wealthy man, who was king of Israel, in 1 
Chronicles 29, he says this. He says, everything in heavens and on earth is yours, O Lord. Wealth comes from you alone. Who am I and who are my people that we could give you anything? Everything we have has come from you, and we only give what you first gave us. All that we have has come from you, and anything that we give you first came from you. So what does this mean for you? What does this mean for us? Um, If you are a steward, then your wealth is not really yours. Um, And with your life, God calls you to be radically generous. And this means that if you're not radically generous, it's not just stinginess, but it's robbery. Think about it this way. Hear me out on this. Um, If you're a fund manager, right, if you're managing somebody's wealth and you're not using the money the way the owner says to you it or you're, says to use it or you're taking way more for yourself than is agreed upon, you're not just being uncompassionate, right? You're not being uncompassionate. You're being a thief. Um, there's this famous passage in Malachi. Malachi was an Old Testament prophet, Malachi 3.8, where Malachi says to the children of Israel, will you rob God? Yet you have robbed him. How? In tithes and offerings. So in the Old Testament, everyone was told 10% of your income needs to be given away. Now, that sounds like a lot of money, 10%. Sounds like a lot of money, but think about it this way. Um, What if an incredibly wealthy individual came to you and offered you a job? And offered you a job to manage their money. And you, being a good interviewer, say back, well, what are the terms? And the wealthy individual responds to you, I would like you to invest my money, and every year you can keep 90% of the returns and just give me 10%. Now, would you take that job? Yes, I would take that job. That's an incredible Incredible offer, right? Um, these are the terms that God is offering you. He's saying, I only want 10%. You can live on the other 90% because it's all my money. That's what Malachi is saying. If you don't give that away, you're not just stingy. He's saying you're a thief. And I know this is incredibly strong language. Um, but this is what it's saying. So you may say, well, 10%, that's just the Old Testament, right? That's just for the Old Testament. Um, C.S. Lewis, in writing about money, he wrote this. He said, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. Only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. I've heard it said in other words that we're to give until it hurts. So here's the premise. God has been radically generous to you in giving you his son and giving you his son, Jesus. And so the response to this radical love is a radical generosity with your wealth. Now, for some of you, this will be 10%. For others of you, this will be 90%. Um, I've got a friend whose brother-in-law is a spine surgeon, and he makes $9 million a year. Yeah, I know everyone just changed their major, right? Um, $9 million a year, and he lives off of 10%. So after taxes, that's $4.5 million. Um, but it's still $4.5 million, right? And he lives off of 10%. He and his wife are committed to living off of 10% of their wealth and giving the other 90% away. Because they understand that God calls them to a radical generosity. I mean, y'all are st- I mean that's a lot of money. I know. Um, so what does this mean? This means that if you... What this means is that you are a steward of money that is not yours. And when you finish college and you start making money, the owner of that money will say to you, I want you to be distributing at least 10% of my wealth to people in need and to the church and to ministries. And ask you, are you doing that? And if your answer is no, not really... It's not just stinginess, it's robbery. Because you're a steward of money that's not yours. So Jesus is teaching his disciples two things from this parable. First, we're stewards of money that, aren't, that isn't ours. And second, we need a love that's not here. Look at what Jesus is doing in this passage. In verse 8, um, 
The master commended the manager because he was acting shrewdly. For the people of this world, um, the people of this world are wiser in using their money than we who have the kingdom perspective. And I tell you, use your worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when your worldly wealth is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Jesus is doing one of these, like, if this, then how much more kind of argument. What did the manager do? Well, he eschewed the the short-term financial goals and put his money in something that was long-term more valuable. He put his, his wealth in relationships. And what's fascinating about this is that Jesus is saying, even inside of the secular framework, people know to put their money into something that will increase in value. People know to put their money into something that will compound. It's better to limit your money now if it means in the long run it's going to increase and grow in value. And Jesus is saying, even secular people know that. So the question is, what will really last? There's nothing in this world, no material thing, no asset, no place that you can put your money that will really last. Nothing. If you put your money in an offshore bank account that no one can touch, eventually someone's going to find it. And even if they don't, you're going to die. Absolutely nothing in this life is going to last. This is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, instead, to send your money forward into something that will last forever. And elsewhere, he says, don't store up for yourself treasures on earth where thieves can break in and steal and moths and rust can destroy. But store up for yourself treasures in heaven because where your treasure is there, your heart is also. So one reason this parable is so helpful for us is that if Jesus just said, put your money, put your wealth, put your treasure into eternal glory, into true riches, um, that's just, I mean, that's kind of hard for me to understand. I don't know about you, but it, like, it doesn't, like, I guess I understand it conceptually, but I don't know how to do it. Like, I understand his logic, right? If there is a God, if Jesus is who he says he is and rose from the, and rose from the dead, then of course, this is what I should do with my money. But the, that logic doesn't make me want to be radically generous, um, it, doesn't, it doesn't move my heart. It doesn't open my wallet. But what Jesus says here does, and I hope that this moves you too, because when Jesus talks about heaven, he's not talking about like, these vague like, glory and mansions. He's not talking about streets paved with gold and harps, um, which he, the Bible does talk in those categories elsewhere. But when he talks about eternal dwellings, what is he talking about? Who does he say will be there? Friends. Jesus says heaven is where your friends are. Jesus says, use your money to make friends. Michael Wilcock, who's a commentary, wrote a commentary on Luke. He says, here's the point of the parable. All those, these, thi- these things, your property, your ability, and your time belong to this life only. Jesus says, what will happen to you then when you pass into the afterlife will depend on what you were doing with them here and now. What will happen to you when you pass into the afterlife will depend on what you were doing with your assets here and now. So make sure that your use of money brings you into a fellowship of friends which will survive beyond death. In this parable, the steward realizes it's more important for him to have friends than to have money in the bank. So he's saying to forgo money in the bank to have friendship. Um, so I was thinking about money, and like for mo- money, comes all down. It all comes down to security, doesn't it? Like. Ask yourself this, why do you want to make a lot of money? Why do I want to make a lot of money? Like, why do you dream about that job that has the earning prospect of, of those extra zeros? It's security, right? Like money promises us security. It promises us significance. But friends, if you make a lot of money, you're not going to be secure. I mean, ask anyone who's lost everything. 
Ask anyone who's had to file for bankruptcy or um, who's, who's been laid off or their, their parents have been laid off. There's no sure thing with money. And if you want to feel secure, if that's what you're after, um, there is one thing that will actually make you feel secure. It's friends. It's having people who love you and people who you love in response, people who will help you. Um, in the end, what, what Jesus seems to be saying is, in the end, the only thing that really matters is love. It's the ultimate thing you need, and you only feel truly wealthy when you're loving people and when you're surrounded by people who love you back. Um, I don't know if you've, if you've heard adults say this, but my dad, as he now has eight grandchildren, um, he says over and over again when he's with his grandkids, I'm rich. I'm richer than I could ever, think, ever dream of being when he's around his grandchildren. Like there's this, this thing that relationships and love, being loved by someone and loving them back, it gives us the wealth, the security that we long for that money cannot give. But Jesus is, is pointing out something else in this parable. He's saying that the love that you need to survive actually isn't found here. Like it's not found in these relationships here. Um, this love that we need to survive isn't found here. So where is it? Well, Jesus opens the door briefly in this parable to show us. He gives us this glimpse of heaven. Remember how he describes it, right? It's not gold, it's paved streets, it's not harps. Um, it's a place of friends. Heaven is a place of friends. Jonathan Edward, Edwards, who was a pastor and president of Princeton University in the 18th century, um, wrote this sermon called Heaven is a World of Love. And in the sermon, Edward said that you better be aimed at heaven because as important as friendships are in this life, friendships are almost more a source of pain here than they are of joy. You better be aimed at heaven because friendships here are almost more a source of pain than they are of joy. And he says that there are these barriers to really love and being loved um, that don't go away in this life, but they're gone in heaven. So I want to just name three of these. Um, and because of these barriers, love here is, can actually be more painful than it can be a source of joy. So one thing is that we all want love, we all want to be loved for our own sake, right? How many of you have thought that someone loved you for your own sake, but then you discovered that they loved you for some other reason? Like they didn't love you for you, they loved you for your stuff. Like you'd be like you being a kid and everyone comes to your house to play, but you find out it's because you got a PlayStation, Right? It's tough. It's brutal to be loved for something other than your own sake. Um, it's painful. It's horrible. And almost none of us are loved for our own sake. We want something from each other. We all want to be, and we all want to be loved for our own sake. But we just can't have that here. Like that just doesn't happen here. But in heaven, we will be loved for our own sake, and we will love others for their own sake, absolutely and completely and fully. And second, when you love somebody. If they're not happy, it destroys your ability to be happy. Have you noticed this? If you grew up in a big family, you probably saw it with your mom. Like, if, if um, when you love someone, what you do is you insert your happiness into their happiness. And so their happiness becomes your happiness. So if they're miserable, you can't be happy. Um, a friend's grandmother said once, once you start having children, you're never for the rest of your life happier than your least happy child. Once you start having children, you're never, um, you're never for the rest of your life happier than your least happy child. You can never be happier than the people you love. So this is why C.S. Lewis said, if you don't want your heart to be broken, just stop loving people. 
But then, of course, you'd be a hardened person and you'd be right on your way to hell. And that's the only alternative. We live in a world where loving people is more a source of pain than it is a source of joy. I mean, why do you think everyone's having, getting dogs rather than having kids? Dogs are so much easier. <laughs> um, so much less painful. But there, in heaven, everyone will be perfectly happy and all the people we love will be perfectly happy. So third, um, the third thing I want to show you is we want to love and never be separated from the people we love. We want to love without parting. Um, There is nothing worse than knowing that when you marry someone, one or the other of you, unless you die in a plane crash together and you're lucky, um, one or the other of you is going to have to bury the other person. That's just the way it is. Like That's the world that we live in. Um, We will have to bury each other but not there. It's like here on earth, um, it's like we're beached whales. All right, think about a beached whale with me. Beach whale's still alive, but not for long, and it's not having a very good time. Um, friends, you and I were meant for this kind of love, this, this love um, that, this love that um, the other person is happy, so your happiness is tied up in them, um, a love that, that doesn't end, where you don't have to be separated from each other, a love where we are loved for our own sake and we love others for their own sake. Um, but we're like beached whales. It's only when you get the whale back into the ocean that it can do its whale stuff, right? Um, like It's only when we're there, when we're in heaven, that we will be able to love the way that we long to be loved and that love will not just will not be more heartache than joy, but will be, be full and everlasting joy. Um, we are designed for perfect love. We're designed for what Jesus is saying heaven will be like. Now, I know there's some people here who are thinking, um, I can't believe that. Do you really believe in heaven and do you believe in living forever with people who you love and God and all that? And so if you have trouble believing this, um, I want you for just a minute, um, grant me this, just, just a minute, I want you to imagine yourself Imagine what it would be like to completely believe this. Just imagine with me for just a minute what it would be like to completely believe this. Imagine what it would be like to be completely sure that because of what Jesus Christ has done, and I believe in it, that I'm going to live with my friends and family and loved ones with God himself in perfect love. Love for its own sake. Love without parting. Love in absolute happiness. If this is true... Do you realize what this would do to how, how we spend our money? Like how much easier it would be to face life? Jesus is saying, use your worldly wealth knowing that what really lasts is love and people. So what does this mean? What is an application for y'all? Just want to say three quick things. Um, the first is never make money at the expense of people. Never make money at the expense of people. Money fails. Money will be gone. But people last forever. Second, um, put your money into people's needs, not just into savings for yourself and your family, but put it out there in other people, things that help people, men broken lives. People are more important than money. And thirdly, I mean, I don't know if you guys remember this stuff in 20 years. Maybe you will. Um, But thirdly, um, invest in ministries that bring the good news of Jesus to people. Because when you bring the word of God, which is eternal, and to, the, and to a human who is eternal, and that person responds in faith, they will be your friend forever. That is what, that's what Jesus is saying here. You can use your money to make friends forever. 
like real BFFs, not just BFFs in middle school, real BFFs. Um, like Michael Wilcox said, uh, use your money to create a fellowship of friends that will survive beyond death. So just I'm closing here. But do you know how this is possible? How is this possible? In 2 Corinthians 8, um, the Apostle Paul is talking to the church in Corinth, and he's telling them about this church in Macedonia who has had this famine, and he's, he's imploring them to give money to this other church, to, to, give, to gather money together and to give it to this other church. Um, and he says to them, I don't want you to give your money because I'm ordering you to, but I want you to give your money out of love. And then Paul tells them how to have their love make them generous. He writes this. He says, think of Jesus Christ who when he was rich became poor so that through his poverty we might become rich. This is what he's saying. He's saying Jesus Christ is the friend who emptied himself of all his money to turn enemies into friends. Jesus is the true steward, the one who loses all his wealth, all the money he could have. He wasn't an unjust, dishonest steward. He was the true steward. But what he did was he made friends for himself in heaven. We were his enemies. And by going to the cross, he turned his enemies into friends. Because he has done this and we've been recipients of this ultimate friendship, we can know that we are going to last forever. And we're going to live with him forever. Um, Please think about heaven as a place of love, a world of love, and contribute your money in a way, use your money in a way that's controlled by that knowledge. Um, Because friends, I want you to be people who are happy enough and loving enough to give away your money um, in shocking proportions. That's what the gospel frees you to do. Let's pray. Jesus, um, you say really hard things to us. Um, We thank you that you tell us the truth. Lord, thank you that um, you show us that our money is not our own, but it is yours. All things belong to you and that you call us to be stewards of that. Um, Lord, thank you that... uh, with that, we can, we can do great things, that we can make friends who will last into eternity. Uh, Lord, this news is, is too wonderful for us. We pray that you would help us to believe it. Um, Lord, help us to make sense of it. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name.